believing is seeing, right? So what yes. you believe is what you will see, right? Yep. And if we could flip the script and instead of sort of saying the goal is to seek out potentially dangerous people, what if our goal was to seek out and help potentially vulnerable people? Oh, wow. What if we deep. flipped the entire purpose of utilizing technology to help us understand community? If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. Uh, with me today is Lenore Anderson, who is the author of the book, In Their Names. Now, did you know that as of 2020, we have more than 2 million people that work in the industry we're going to talk about? It's not artificial intelligence. Yeah, I know that's that's the big thing nowadays. No, it is the justice system. I don't call it the the, the criminal justice system because it lacks justice most of the time. So it, I call it the the, the system. Uh, I certainly don't call it the justice system. We also spend more than this was as 2020, 300 billion annually. So I mean, you would think, Lenore, we've solved crime in this in this country. We're ahead of the curve. We're focused on victims and we're very efficient at it. You will be wrong if you think that's the case. We are one of the worst at it. And uh, in your book, you 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 say this, those who are actually, uh, who are most harmed remain the least helped. And that's still true of 2023. And I'm honored to have Lenore here to talk about this. I have read this book. It is a transformative book. It is one that you must read. Um, even if you are a... Uh, uh, even if you are aware of uh, how bad our system is, if you're my first entry into this, uh, my first the first book I read that really, really opened my eyes, Lenore, was uh, uh, The New Jim Crow. That was the book that really kind of really sparked, sparked my, my, my just thoughts to say, I had no idea that it's this bad. And I believe firmly that this the lack of justice within our system is the is the preeminent civil rights issue of our time. So thank you for your work. She's also uh, the co-founder of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Uh, they are a sponsor of this podcast. They have been a supporter of, of our work, and we're I'm honored to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. No, oh, the honor is mine. Thank you so much, Rob. No, thank you. So what sparked you to write this book? What was the... What was your what was your driving force about behind writing this book? Well, you know, I wanted to write a book um, that was able to talk about an aspect of mass incarceration that is frequently ignored. And that aspect of mass incarceration is how it has actually hurt victims of crime. I grew up in the 80s and 90s in California, the home of the tough on crime movement that spread across the country. And a lot of the policy reform that alleged to promote public safety, right? You know, mandatory sentencing, um, you know, truth in sentencing, you know, mandatory minimums, um, you know, no pretrial release, all of these types of policies that really ratcheted up incarceration in the U.S., the political message, Rob, was, hey, this is going to be better for victims. This is really how we help victims of crime. It's how we help improve safety. 
And, you know, over the years that I've been advocating to change this system, I've seen in state house after state house, many policymakers are still stuck on that idea. They're still stuck in this world of like, you know, we live in a time where, you know, a lot of folks now get and understand the, the, the racism in the criminal justice system. They get and understand um, you know, how wasteful it is, how much money is being um, wasted on these bloated prisons, but there's still a barrier, right? We talk to lawmakers in states all across the country and we hear, well, you know, we don't want to reform criminal justice too much. You know, we got to be careful because we want to be able to continue to protect victims. And so, you know, from my perspective, in the trenches in local government, as well as in grassroots organizing and community building work, I've seen over and over again that actually mass incarceration has hurt many more victims than it's helped. So I really wanted to expose the other side of the coin. There's too much incarceration, but chronic victim disregard is the same system. And until we understand that, until we understand this link between chronic victim disregard and mass incarceration, we're going to continue to limit um, our imagination. Yeah, because mass incarceration doesn't focus on victims. It does not. And this book helped me understand that. And I I thought I was fairly educated on this in terms of done done a lot in in this in this field and helped. And we worked together, uh, your organization, Shakira Diaz, many people. So like I. I'm, I'm not probably I'm more informed than most, but this still like the level of like the level of just lack of empathy, lack of humanization. I knew that existed for those who are in the system, right? Those who uh, commit the crimes or alleged of committing the crimes or commit the acts. I knew that that was causing problems uh, and that the dehumanization of those who who go through the system definitely caused more problems. What I what I fail to appreciate is the is that that same system was not only creating uh, more problems for those who went into the system, but those who 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 were supposed to be who they were protecting <laughs> from them was that was the, they were actually creating more problems because of how our system is incentivized, how it's cre- how, how it's been, and how that cycle has continued over and over again. So, quite a few questions here. So, as you you just went to this example to talk about, like you, people have now recognized. That we've, I think, almost universally, that we've gone too far. But what they fail to realize is that it's the current nature of it that is the problem, and how we go about it. How do we tackle that from the point of view when we know that it's been such a pervasive thing? Like when an idea sets, even if it's a bad idea, this is why it's so important to fight back against rhetoric, right? Because once that sets, it becomes part of the psyche, and then it becomes part of our bias. And then people no longer even understand that it's part of their bias. And then even people that can mean well have been so infected and affected by this, by these narratives that it that it that it creates massive problems. Like when you talked about in the book, the the super narrative kind of uh narrative that took off in the 90s about kids, mostly black kids, let's be straight, right? When that narrative took off and took place, it it took on a life of its own and that stayed. For a generation, given given all that background, how do we begin to tackle that? You know, what I'll tell you how how we began uh, to tackle it, um, Rob. Which is, we started off saying, "Listen, if 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 the maintenance of mass incarceration policies 
is propped up by these myths, right? These narratives that you're talking about that took a hold in the 80s and 90s, whether it was the super predator myth um, that really demonized young people of color uh, and or, you know, the myth that victims are really this vengeful lobby that wants all the incarceration in the world. If if those are the myths that are propping up mass incarceration, what would it look like to actually engage folks who've been harmed? What if we started conversations with, hey, real-time information from people who've been hurt by crime and violence, can that help us unpack what's true and not true here, right? So right. we started off, you know, we were like, all right, small room, focus groups, bring together people who've been hurt by crime and violence, who've engaged with the justice system or experienced disregard, and ask, what would you have wanted? What could have prevented it? What would the solutions for safety be? And what we found really flips on its head all of the mythology about what's best for victims and what's best for public safety. What we found instead of sort of, uh, you know, a group of people who uh, were uh, applauding this tough on crime approach to safety, we found uh, diverse representative groups of victims across the country actually want rehabilitation, actually yeah. want, um, you know, the, you, when you ask the question, what what would matter the most? The answer, by and large, is actually heal trauma. Stop yes. the cycle of trauma. Stop the cycle of violence. Folks who have been most harmed know better than non-victims, know better than people who've not experienced it, how that cycle of violence continues. Right. Solutions are not going to be found in prison first approaches. The solutions are going to be found. The safety solutions are going to be found at the community level, at the at the family level, at the neighborhood level, uh, investing in prevention, investing in the building blocks for safety that need to happen. So that wisdom that we now have as advocates, right, when we're when we're in state houses and trying to change laws. It comes from the people that we talked to originally, yes. right? It comes from just saying, let's investigate the truth of this myth. Is it true or is it not true that victims want all this tough on crime stuff? They don't. Here's what they say instead. Let's learn from that and build a new approach. Which is why you call the book In Their Names. It's about the stories of the, the victims that transform to survivors to help advocate for a better system. And I think that was a, a, a brilliant focus. And I think it's very important. We are, as you say, a traumatized nation, though, right? And this, and we know that trauma tends to carry on generation to generation. And the challenge is how do we how do we pass on how do we pass on healing? You talk about this in your book. Mm. We normally pass on trauma. Yeah. How do we create a system around passing on healing? You know, this was one of my favorite parts of of the book to to explore. Um, you know, I've worked in um, local government uh, public safety systems, and I've also worked as an advocate for reform for about twenty five years. And there's a saying among all of us who work, right, either to reform criminal justice in or inside criminal yeah, justice. Hurt people, and, hurt people. And that's I, the saying, right? You know it because you've know been, the saying. been doing the work. <laughs> you've been doing the work, right? So you know that that's what we all say. And and we say it because it's true, right? It's you, very it's, true. It's not actually rocket science to figure out um, how and why people fall through the cracks and end up making decisions um, that may hurt others, right? Yes. This is known patterns of... Um, you know, experiencing trauma at an early age 
um, extreme economic desperation, the things that hurt people end up, if we don't heal, end up contributing to the likelihood that they hurt someone else. Yes. So we know that, and the science is clear. And by the way, this is true regardless of zip codes. This is not about the background of the person. This is Mm. not about... Um, zip code. It's not about race. It's not about gender. This is just the function of being a human being. Yes. It's when we get hurt, if we don't get access to healing, we are very likely to fall through cracks, develop substance use disorder, develop mental health challenges, and or hurt other people. That's just what happens to all of us, right? So that's the that's the side. The, well, there's this other side, and I love that you know um, so many people working in violence prevention now kind of you know say yes, hurt people, hurt people, and healed people, heal people, right? Yes. We can just at the same the same um, you know challenges that folks face when they experience extreme trauma and repeat trauma and don't get help. We can also provide people real pathways to healing. And you're literally changing not just brain waves, you're changing families, communities, neighborhoods. Healing helps us all. Healing is safety for all of us. Yes. And the way to do it is to invest in the survivor leaders who are pointing the pathway um, and building the programs, whether it's trauma recovery centers, re-entry centers, violence interrupters, or sort of street peacekeepers. Um, you know, mental health crisis response. Those are all real world programs that provide people a lifeline. And when you can provide people with that lifeline, when you can actually give people connection to community stability and healing, you're increasing their success and you're increasing the success of everyone around them. Yeah, what's uh, fascinating is that uh, it's all this focus on the victim and the reasoning behind the massive amount of money, time and resources we spend on, again, locking people up and really focusing on drug enforcement, locking people up most of the time, right? How that's really perversed our priorities. And you talk about that. And, and I really want to get to domestic violence uh, victims and uh, and uh, our, our, our mutual friend, Shakira, uh, was also from Ohio. Shout out to Shakira. Uh, she's mentioned in this book and you talk about her advocacy to help a rape victim uh, get help and the lack of help that rape victim uh, received. Talk about how that is a systemic problem. And particularly, I think what was very fascinating was how how we how the how there was a systemic a systemic focus so much on prosecuting drug crimes that there was ignoring actually crimes of robbery, rape, and things like that. Talk about like how the how does the effect of really ignoring domestic abuse, uh, you know, uh rape and things like that end up hurting crime for everyone overall? Yeah. Well, so, you know, the rhetoric in the 80s and 90s was victim rights and law and order. The policy responses to that rhetoric was a whole bunch of money for criminal justice bureaucracies. I mean, we're talking millions and millions of dollars from the federal government to state systems to police um, systems at the local level. 
but it was not money for what one might think the money would be for if we were very concerned about public safety, which would be understanding trends, understanding how to communicate with folks who are getting repeatedly hurt, building pathways to prevention. No, actually, most of the money was earmarked for beefing up and militarizing our criminal justice system, yes. right? This was money for uh, the war on drugs, uh, the what used to be called in the 80s and 90s, the war on parolees, right? The war, on, right? So, you know, we're talking about um, this huge explosion and this lopsided explosion where we pushed a ton of money into criminal justice systems and they got really good at mass surveillance, busting people for low level stuff and mass incarceration. That was yep. their skill. That was what they were trained in. That's what they did. That's what folks were put on the street to do. That's what prosecutors got so good at doing. Um, you know, quick resolution in those general felony, uh, you know, criminal courts. I mean, you're just, you know, guilty plea after guilty plea, right? Because this is all driven by, um, you know, arrest rates and and prosecution rates and, and uh, incarceration rates, not driven by solving crimes, not driven by looking at the intractable and difficult cycles of harm that are happening, but actually stay in where it's simple and where a military sort of presence can make a difference. Now compare that to the realities, right? No, and critical, critical point to this, all of that militarized mass surveillance was, it was not happening uh, across every community, oh, right? No. Right. This it, wouldn't, this, it wouldn't this work. Wasn't, this wasn't the suburbs. Okay. No. This was this was an effort to engage in mass surveillance primarily in communities of color, primarily in urban communities. And these are communities where folks who are genuinely uh, experiencing harm, right? Whether it's you're a victim of domestic violence, you're a victim of rape, you're more likely, right, in that in that construct to be engaging with the criminal justice system, seeking to arrest you than yes. seeking to help you. Yes. Right. And so that's, that's the upside down priorities that got developed through funding and through policy priority. And through and, narratives like war, you're saying right. war with your own citizens, just hold that though. War is preserved for like preserving the national interest against an enemy combatant. And so we turn that on its head and now we're at war with just certain communities and, and 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 the relationship built to that mistrust. And you can talk more to how that continued to build mistrust. How did that the narrative the narratives around militarization? And then after you answer that, I really want to have a, a in-depth conversation really about a point you made about the policies where we had crack pipes over rape kits and the, yeah. and the and the and the really tragic case that happened out of Cleveland which I also had no idea about but talk about how the militarization of police has led to a breakdown in trust between the community and policing yeah well you know um and and kind of connected to to where you you're wanting to go i mean if you look at um you know the the cries out for help that were happening in the 80s and 90s there was a significant increase in um, violence. Um, we're yes. experiencing an increase again today, right? I was going to bring that up too about the parallels, but go ahead. Right. And, and, and the response was, uh, let's militarize our police. Um, let's, uh, you know, ratchet up, um, mass surveillance and mass incarceration. You're actually decreasing trust. 
in the very communities that are crying out for help. They're call, they're crying out for uh, treatment, right? Not uh, mass surveillance. They're cr- crying out for uh, solving crimes, right? Not just arresting everyone uh, blanket uh, for low level stuff. So police uh, and prosecutors and, and, and sheriffs and courts got expert at this, at this one aspect of their jobs and totally disregarded um, real need for community trust building. And the impact is significant, right? When you look, you know, at the um, homicide closure rates, right? How, how many of those cases are being solved? Um, you know, uh, sexual assault uh, crimes, uh, you know, domestic violence, uh, human trafficking. These are extremely difficult, um, cyclical types of harm um, and violence that require sophistication, require trust, require smart investigation to do something about. But you can't do that if all your money and your expertise is tied up in these bloated uh, mass surveillance um, and mass incarceration approaches. And so, you know, we see in cities where at the same time in the 80s and 90s, when um, drug possession arrests were literally, uh, you know, skyrocketing, right, you know, triple and quadruple as many people getting arrested for felonies, that's it was all, you know, drugs and theft. At that same time, you see homicide closure rates in those same cities down at 10%, 15%, 20%. So, Rob, these cases aren't even being solved. And so the and, and community members experiencing that contradiction, right, are going to have a, a huge gap in their ability to trust those systems right. that are more interested than arrest in arrest than help. Yep. Malcolm X said it that you know that that the the our neighborhoods are most policed and the least safe. And there's, there's something wrong with that. Like if you're spending the most resources on it, why is there not, why is safety not following? Uh, and, yeah. and and it speaks to the reasons you just said, uh, but I, I really want to dive into what happened in, in Cleveland. Cause again, I had no idea about yeah. this. So I'm going to high level talk about it and really just get your thoughts about how we can prevent this from happening again. Like when people think about all the money and all the resources, we just, we talked about it uh, earlier. And you have a situation where there was a serial killer going around uh, Cleveland and the serial killer was raping and murdering uh, African-American women. And you said in the book, and it's a it's a sad I just think it's a fact. It's a sad fact that the serial killer was smarter than the police because he knew that the victims he chose would be ignored for years or, or be ignored, period. And 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 your book. Uh, illuminated that to just a horrific effect in that there was a woman that miraculously got away. I forgot her name. I'm sure you remember her name, but she got away and called the police and they told her to come in to the police station after she reported a serial killer killing people. They, the, I just can't even understand it. The, the, the operator told her to come in because again, part of the issue is, Trust on both sides. This this lady assumes that because of the narrative we put forward, the operator, I'm, I'm trying to understand her point of view. I, I think it's ridiculous, but from her, but she, we've been, she's been a, uh, infected so much by these narratives that she assumes anybody that's coming from these communities, they're all criminals. Mm-hmm. And what happened is we saw this person get away, the serial killer. It wasn't, I don't think, I believe, I believe until a year and a half later, and probably many murders later that these, that this, uh, serial killer was discovered and the bodies were discovered when 
that we could have solved the crime much earlier had we actually listened to the people on the ground. How can we learn from these situations and not repeat this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that was a loaded question, but. I mean, you know, I I wanted to feature that story of uh, Vanessa and the work that Shakira and others, Shakira Diaz and others did to um, to transform um, Ohio's approach because it spoke volumes to what we're talking about when we're talking about chronic victim disregard. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about this, uh, you know, woman who survived uh, something no one should have to survive. No, it should never happen that someone is experiencing that kind of violence. Um, you know, she narrowly escapes with her life from, uh, you know, a, 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 a serial killer who is, uh, engaged in sexual assault, targeting women of color in Cleveland. She escapes this, goes to report it, and is told we can only take that police report down in the station. And then her second interaction with law enforcement, she's arrested as someone who had been on probation prior to the crime happening. She's arrested for uh, possession. So then she's sitting in jail, right, as a as a defendant when she is trying to give them information that is literally life or death information for thousands of 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 women in Cleveland at that time. And, it you know, and it, it's so uh, alarming to imagine that this is just the time this happened that we know about. Okay. That's exactly right. This is just the time that we are are lucky enough to absorb and understand what happened here. But when we treat entire communities as communities that are suspects only, enemy combatants, then then we miss opportunities to actually see real vulnerabilities and to actually stop harm from continuing to happen. And that's exactly what happened uh, in this situation in, in Cleveland. And, the, and then, you know, your question, you know, how, how do we learn from this? Well, it's leadership that changed that, right? So, you know, uh, a couple of investigative reporters uh, in Cleveland uh, uncovered untested rape kits, thousands and thousands of untested rape kits sitting there collecting cobwebs in the back of the police department happening at the same time that the crime lab was overrun with requests to test, to test crack pipes, right? Yes. So that people could get felony convictions for, for, uh, for trace amounts of crack being found, found on their pipe. That's what um, you know, crime lab resources were going to, right? Well, it was investigative reporters that discovered that, and it was grassroots organizers that pushed back. And yeah. grassroots organizers like Shakira Diaz from my organization, Alliance for Safety and Justice, that got police to, the police department to change their policy and stop yep. testing crack pipes and wasting people's time. They got the police department to start testing uh, rape kits and helping out women. There were and 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 there's and there were so many hundreds and hundreds of courageous survivors who stood up at city council meetings, calling the mayor's office, calling public officials to get those policies changed. So what we can learn is that if we listen first and invest in grassroots leadership, we can hold public systems accountable. Yes, and that we also have the power, despite all of this, despite sometimes feeling hopeless, uh, that there is power 
and there's the ability to change when we're rolling the fight from the ground up. It 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 can and has happened and can only continue to happen with advocates. It's the reason why people should definitely purchase the book. People should become a part of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, figure out how you can help on the ground. It it, it does and can, and it, it, it matters. Because I think the other side of that is people, they get to say, well, there's nothing I can do. And they check out and they become hopeless, which is, is, is uh, I think it helps the problem continue. And it's understandable how people get to that, but we have to encourage people to show them examples that we have made changes like this. It's a persistent fight. It's a consistent fight. And it's uh, it's it's unfortunately, we would love for you to not have a job in this area because you've solved the problem. But we know that's going to be that's going to be a tall task for a while. And that's why we need uh, you. We need this story. We need people need to understand this narrative and learn from it. Um, with that, I also want to talk about the fact that we also they were working to incentivize people. I think not only were they focused on the crack pipes, right? I think just going one more point on the story, they were actually focused on uh, going out and creating their own manufacturing and selling crack to the community to figure out opportunities to lock up people. This was a ongoing thing that occurred for years. And the focus was because they got more money to do this. The money was given for drug convictions, it wasn't it wasn't incentivized for actually healing communities and making them safer. You got money for putting people in prison, and that became a lot of the problem too. And and what is the most shocking part of that? You think if you had to tell people all the things that we've learned about through our through, through the system in terms of how it's incentivized for money for prosecution, what do you think is the most shocking fact that would just just make people mm. just I don't know, stop speaking or just say, wow, I just can't believe that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, where to begin, right? I mean, the, the, I know that's a hard question, (laughs) (laughs) which, which is most shocking. Well, yes. I mean, you know, I, you know, just to the, to the, to the comment you made, I'm, you know, and one of the reasons I put it in the book, um, you know, outside of Cleveland, it wasn't just Cleveland, you know, testing crack pipes at that time. You know, there were cities, you know, Santa Ana, California, Broward County, Florida, the public officials were using their own crime lab resources to actually manufacture drugs and then give those drugs to undercover officers to go do reverse buy busts on the corners, right? So we're we're actually giving, making drugs, the public What's money. a reverse buy dress? Uh, so, so, you know, most people know, under, uh, you know, under, undercover police might arrest someone for selling drugs by pretending to be a buyer, right? Yes. Well, the reverse of that is when an undercover officer with drugs manufactured by in the local sheriff's department, no less, um, is actually standing on the corner trying to sell the drugs. And so they become the drug the dealers and they're arresting the buyers who sit, who are the clearly the, the ones that are often the buyers are the people that are the victims that are addicted for mental illness reasons and things like that, or other reasons, because it's we know that's tied to mental state and lack of support. So you're literally, it's another example of victimizing the victims and we're paying them to do it. And I mean, talk about perverse incentives. I mean, it, you know, there was an article in the in the L.A. Times in the in the early 90s when this was discovered in, in uh, Southern California that police were manufacturing crack to sell it to arrest buyers. The, the, the quote in the in the L.A. Times from a law enforcement official was we try not to sell in front of middle schools. Right. Oh, my and God. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> You can't even, 
you know, I, I I can't even make this up. So I say that to say, you know, a lot has changed since then, Rob. This is not happening. This is not present day, you know, that we are aware of. This is, you know, from a time when the incentives were so lopsided that an entire justice system's metric for success was the number of arrests and convictions. Okay. That was the entire, well, you know, if that's your metric for success and the money's coming in for you to do surveillance and incarceration, the old saying when, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. Right. And so that was then we have made strides. There's so many good people who work inside the criminal justice system who have been reformers from within. There's so many good grassroots organizations who've been holding public systems accountable and 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 shining a light on these horrible stories. There's still a long way to go, but you know I do I do think we're in a we're in a an, an inflection point. I do I do think that we're in a moment where. If we can just come to terms with how totally unsafe this was, this was extremely unsafe public policy. Absolutely. Um, then, then we can then we can go further and and really start to have the breakthrough that communities deserve. I have no doubt of the of the data, and uh, you know I believe that. And not only do I believe that we have the data to back it up, but I also know people are very irrational. And when it comes to things like crime, uh, it it. Sometimes rationality, often rationality shuts off and we know leaders use those moments to divide and stay in power. I do have concern about the current environment, as you as we alluded to earlier, because crime is rising right now. How do we go about addressing the fact that crime is rising right now and how do we go back? How do we, we we know we have learning lessons from this, but. How do we go about addressing this moment, claiming the narrative and actually coming up with solutions? Yeah, I mean, I'd say three three things are are really critical. Um, one is that, you know, a lot of lawmakers would like to think the choice is between criminal justice reform and public safety as if they're di- uh, in dichotomy. Uh, dichotomy. Right. And w- w- what we say when we're talking to lawmakers and engaging with public officials is we say, no, this is a choice between the best pathway to public safety. We all stand on the same value. Everyone has a right to safety. Everyone deserves to be safe in their homes, in their communities, in their cities. This is a question of how to get to that safety. So if we can focus in on how the policies that are that we are proposing are safer than the old tough on crime, lock them up um, and throw away the key approach, then we can start to build a broad coalition for this new safety movement. And we have to engage around what does really make communities safe. Um, it's not the communities that have the most police and the most you know people on um, probation and parole. It, it, in fact, it's the communities that are strong. And strong communities look like economic uh, opportunities, strong communities look like crisis assistance, support, strong communities look like places where when something happens and you need help, you can get help. Yes. And so that's really what we need to build is a safety movement strong enough to define safety um, along those lines and win the kinds of reforms that would make a difference. 
So I think that's key is, is starting with safety and building alliances for what a new approach to safety could look like. But then the second thing that I think really matters is making sure that we're holding our public systems accountable mm. to treating communities as partners. These are not problems. These are partners, right? These are people who can show you the way if you can have enough humility to sit down as local government officials, state government officials, and actually engage with community leaders. What you're going to find are the solutions are already there, right? In every neighborhood, the, there's already, you know, the grandmother who goes to every 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 homicide scene and meets with the other family members and helps them get victim compensation, helps them find, um, you know, safe places to go. You know, the trauma recovery centers, the reentry centers, the leaders are there. It's a question of partnership and investment. And mm -hmm. if government can figure out how to do that, everyone's going to be safer. No, that that's right. I just. The other part of that is that what gets in the way, of course, is the media. Um, mm. There's there's policymakers, but there's also the media, and uh, you know, media. I, I say this: news is toxic to the brain, like sugar is to the body. Mm. The goal of media, especially nowadays, is how can I get the most hits? You get the hits from the simplest uh, lines, the clickbait, and it's the simple things that we are combating, right? Innocent victims super predators going out right and they and they do these narratives where the goal isn't to solve the problem the goal is to get engagement and we know social media has added added complications to that how do we go about working to change and challenge these narratives yeah you know um i think we have to start on the human level um you know one of the things that i've been so um inspired by in our in our work at Alliance for Safety and Justice is, you know, we um, every year we have these convenings called Survivors Speak, and we bring hundreds of survivors of uh, crime and violence to state capitals to sit down with elected officials. And a lot of folks haven't been to the state capitol before, right? So it's inspiring for the, the person attending our Survivors Speak convening. But then it's also transformative for the lawmakers. You know, so many public officials who talk about public safety all day have not actually spent a bunch of time talking to people who haven't been safe. They yeah. just haven't what a done thought. it. Actually, talk to people in your that you represent. OK, yeah, go ahead. Exactly. And I can tell you every single year when we have these powerful convenings in state houses across the country, at some point, there will be an elected official who will literally stop in their tracks and and say, you know, where have you been? Right. I, I, this conversation has transformed me. Right. Talking to survivors who the justice system disregarded, who are now building neighborhood solutions. And they're saying and these survivors are saying, don't build another prison in our name. Put the money in the neighborhood where we can have real help right now to prevent cycles those kinds of conversations are breakthrough conversations. They're not about politics. They're about human beings. So we have to start at the human level and we have to make sure that we're direct engaging with decision makers and bringing folks with real human experiences to decision makers so that they have to listen to what's really happening and how they can solve it. And I think flowing from there, there's an opportunity for us to tell stories of healing and hope. Fear is certainly a motivator for voters, but hope is an inspiration. 
And if we can continue to put forward messages that are about hope, that are about healing, that are about uh, coming together and building strong communities, I think in the long run, we will win. Yeah. A couple more questions before we close out here. Uh, you talked about surveillance earlier, and I want to circle back to that uh, for the reason of technology. Technology, we've seen huge advancements very recently, particularly with artificial intelligence and how we use data. Uh, to now, I'm I'm sure there are be that there's there's exploration of uh, how to use AI to do surveillance, how to use AI to for the criminal justice system. There's probably ways to do that to prevent bias, and then there's ways to reinforce bias. Um, what are your thoughts on how we should think about approaching that? My belief is that that's going to be the next frontier that we're going to have to look at. Not like in ten years, we got to start right now because trust me. People are looking at this data. People are looking at ways and they probably think, oh, we can save a lot of money. Let's just put an algorithm towards it, which sounds good in theory and could work, assuming the algorithm isn't biased and we aren't putting the same things that we put into it in the past. Uh, obviously, I put a lot of my prep, uh, my uh, my bias in terms of how it needs to be done there. But how is your approach to thinking about technology mm-hmm. and how to and how to and how to help communities and not hurt communities? Yeah, I mean it. You are right that this is an urgent present day question. This is not 10 years. This is like maybe 10 days, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> for gotta, sure. We gotta figure this out quick. Yep. Um, and and I, you know, and I I have hope that you know, folks who are much smarter than me on the on this will 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 be able to to lead the way. Um, you know, I think what we've already seen in terms of technology and criminal justice is a lot of the ways that it can be very very harmful, right? Yep. We've already seen the ways in which racial profiling can get embedded um, in algorithms, embedded in surveillance technology, and that has had extremely devastating effects. Yeah. Um, and so my hope is that there are plenty of smart um, uh, racial justice leaders in the sector of tech that can educate you know, at times, well-meaning leaders in criminal justice and public safety who just don't think enough about the bigger impacts of those technology developments, who can start to educate and also innovate and start to point away. Um, You know, there's that thing, uh, there's that saying, um, uh, believing is seeing, right? (laughs) So what you believe is what you will see, right? Yep. And if we could flip the script and instead of sort of saying the goal is to seek out potentially dangerous people. What if our goal was to seek out and help potentially vulnerable people? Oh, wow. What if we flipped the entire purpose of utilizing technology to help us understand community so that we could drive help to folks who need help? We know who's vulnerable to cycles of harm. This is not mysterious. We know who doesn't, uh, who public systems have disregarded for too long. And if we could use technology to help us identify vulnerability needs, then the solutions flow from that. The solutions for well-being are going to flow from our acknowledgement of where the challenge is. That was beautiful. I mean, that was that was wow. And there's not a whole lot of people that's smarter than you because you you can listen. Let me just tell you what you just said, right, is how the technology matters and doesn't matter. Like what matters is the problem you're solving. 
that's what matters. And so when you're approaching a technology, you don't have to know how to code. You just have to know what are you, what are you targeting? And again, if you're targeting, how can we lock up people? We know what we're going to get. We know we're going to get these, like we got facial recognition that can't recognize me because I'm black. It literally does not recognize black people as well. It misidentifies us. And then all of a sudden, you know, we get put in jail. And if that's your, if that's your, if that's your focus, then that's, that's your input, that's your output, right? So it's, it's as, as complicated as people make technology, the basics aren't that complicated. That's what right. you focus on is what you get, is what you get. And if that's, that's your right. focus, that's what you get. And I just think there's a lot to be done there. And just remind me, I'm going to have to get you with someone that's in a, a field called um, explainable AI. And that's a simple way of saying, making sure we understand and we don't have biases within AI. That's a whole field that no one is focusing on. They're just focusing on, sounds familiar, performance. How much can I get out as quickly as possible? Not, do we actually understand the algorithms? Are we looking at the biases that it's doing? Are we seeing, are we gonna gonna be transparent with it? These things are really going to be, I think, extremely important with the criminal justice system, many other systems, but I think this is, as I said, the uh, civil rights issue of our time. So that was a great answer and a profound answer that you, that, that you had there. So uh, just closing out, what can we do to help your efforts? How can we be supportive of making sure that we are doing our part? Well, there's uh, always the opportunity to join the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Uh, Allianceforsafetyandjustice.org is our uh, website URL. And we uh, work actively in Ohio, and we have a lot of partners in in your home state. We also work in seven other states across the country, and um, we also have a national membership. And so if you join Alliance for Safety and Justice, we have two two or three ways you can join. One is through our crime survivor organizing program, right? If you're a victim of violence or someone who has survived um, harm, who who wants to advocate for better public safety policies, um, then you can join Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. If you're someone who has an old record, who's seeking to organize for real redemption, for the opportunity for everyone to be able to live past their past and get access to real economic mobility opportunities, we have timedone.org. Um, that's our organizing program for folks with old records. And if you're just an ally and you're someone who wants to be an ally and wants to make a difference and stand on the right side of history, allianceforsafetyandjustice.org is a place to go. And we'll get you hooked up with good information and opportunities to get mobilized in your area. Lenore Anderson, author of In Their Names and and the um and the, I think the co-founder of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for coming on Disruption Now podcast. And thank you for all the future things I'm sure we're going to do together. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it very much. Thank you.